0: Welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast on the Western Front Association. I'm Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We're dedicated to furthering understanding of the Great War and have over 60 branches worldwide. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. If you have a project or publication that you would like to discuss on the podcast, I would be delighted to hear from you. You can email me on press at It is the 8th of January 2018 and a happy new year to you all. This is episode number 45. In today's show, Professor Richard Grayson talks about his new book on Dublin between 1912 and 1923. This is due to be published in the near future. He titled his talk Dublin's Great Wars, Parallel Stories from 1922 to 1923. This lecture was recorded on the 10th of November last year, as Richard gave a talk to the Antrim and Down branch of the Western Front Association. I do hope you enjoy it.
1: Well, th- thank you very much. Um, really pleased to be here. It's always a A good audience to speak to, and you're actually only the second group of people um, I've I've spoken to about this book on Dublin and the First World War uh, and and the wider Irish Revolution. The first was um, the War Society and Culture seminar. Is that not on? No, No, No? isn't Okay, that's yeah. Okay, right. I can hear it now. The first was the War Society and Culture seminar at um, the Institute of Historical Research in London, which is essentially Tim Bowman. Uh, So I got lots of good feedback from Tim on it, and and hopefully um, this will spark some interesting discussion. Um, What I'm talking about is a book that's under contract with uh, Cambridge University Press. Uh, The manuscript has uh, got to be with them by the 1st of December. Um, It's nearly finished, Uh, I mean I've had a draft since July, but I was just explaining that when, I go, when my wife read it at October, in October, she looked at it for about half an hour and said, what's this book about? Uh, and I realised I hadn't in, written an introduction, which, uh, uh, and, and that was exactly the kind of feedback I wanted from an environmental scientist rather than a historian. Um, the book's working title at the moment is Dublin's Great Wars, Home Rule... The First World War, the Easter Rising, and Ireland's Fight for Independence, 1912-23. to 23. It's a bit of a mouthful, but then Belfast Boys did have the subtitle How Unionists and Nationalists Fought and Died Together in the First World War, which I hated when the publishers came up with it, but, you know, it said what the book was about. Now, of course, a lot of these things are driven by Google and what people will find, and my own inclination is to go for... Dublin's Great Wars, the First World War and the Irish Revolution and and keep it like that. But generally, people are far more likely to Google the Easter Rising than they are Irish Revolution. So that's a a bit of a problem. But there is a significance in calling it Dublin's Great Wars and uh, that's something I've had a bit of a discussion with the publisher about. I, I like Great Wars, not Great War, because I'm trying to make the point that these are a series of conflicts that are all very significant um, in their own way. Uh, what I want to talk about tonight is is these conflicts in parallel, uh, some parallel stories from those great wars. Uh, let's just think about what the book is about uh, first of all. It's whereas Belfast Boys was about West Belfast, the Shankill of the Falls. Uh, this is about Dublin as a whole, Dublin city and county it 's a massive undertaking it 's why Belfast Boys took three and a half years, and why this book has taken about seven years uh, to do but it 's also about Republicans as well as the British military, uh, plus a bit more politics and some and some home front stuff than I had in Belfast Boys. The methods are broadly those I used in Belfast Boys, so newspapers and service records as, as, as the root of it. Um, but also I've benefited from the release of the IRA pensions records uh, and the witness statements. So there's a very rich resource there. I've ended up um, with uh, nearly 40,000 individual lines of data on individuals. Um, but there's a lot of duplication. Over 12,000 of those relate to people who are covered in, in in, more than one thing. And there's also around 1,500 possible duplicates. But I've ended up with around 25,000 individuals uh, from Dublin city and county who served in the British military in the, in the First World War. Um, because, of course, the records were destroyed, so many records were destroyed... Uh, in London in 1940 that means that I, I would probably have found about 35,000 individuals if those records hadn't been destroyed I've got 6,500 verified dead um, another 600 or so queries um, that puts uh, Dublin's fatality rate at 16 to 18 16 to 19%, which is obviously higher than the overall 12%. Um, that's driven by the fact if you compare the composition of Dublin volunteers to uh, British volunteers as a whole, um, Dubliners were far more likely to be in the infantry. Uh, and of course, because there's no conscription, more of them have joined up early on in the war. So they're in units that are more likely to f- the, the most likely to face danger, and they're serving for longer than the British Army as a whole. That's what's driving that. Um, of course, you get people saying, "Ah, oh, because the English sent the Irish into battle." You know, we know that's problematic. Um, a really good news source is the British Red Cross Society stuff now online, uh, free to use. Of course everyone goes to the website and types in Vera Britain and you get Vera Britain's card really interesting to see that the British Red the academics at um, uh, Kingston University who worked with the British Red Cross on that were really helpful and gave me a download of five five thousand lines of voluntary aid detachment data which equated to about 4,000 individuals um, of whom Thirteen hundred were the the stamp, the VAD nurses that we think of. The rest were people working in sphagnum moss, uh, making comforts for soldiers. And there's a wealth of wealth of material there that that is really new. I don't think anyone's used that. Um, I've got about eighteen hundred verified Republicans, plus about another thousand that I have queries over. I'm gradually Reducing that number Um, and that's my task really for the next two weeks is just to work out who's who, but there are an awful lot of people arrested after the Easter Rising who appear on prisoner lists who don't subsequently show up on any record as having been involved in the Rising now, people wanted their Rising medals, you know, and if they've not got one of those and they were arrested it was probably wrongful arrest. Um, Now, clearly there are people like Arthur Griffith and Owen McNeill who are arrested in 1916 and in McNeill's case did a lot to stop the rising so he's certainly not getting a 1916 medal but we know he was uh well an advanced nationalist I suppose uh and this data's all gone on to spreadsheets I've got data on when men joined where they served when they were wounded um where they came from um information on occupation and information on tattoos which I have recorded this time which I didn't do for Belfast Boys but you know from the service record uh, it, it, it describes if someone's got a scar or a tattoo so that, I've written a bit of informa- information about that overall what I am trying to do with the book is, um, is offer a new narrative let me start with a bit of that and just read you a short section in the week following Easter 1916, fewer than 2,000 Dubliners, serving with others from across Ireland, went into action in a fight that turned out to be against overwhelming odds. Many would die, many were taken prisoner, but most would survive. For much of the week they would see little action, with a decisive onslaught coming towards its end. In years to come, some people would regard them as heroes... Now, of course, you're expected to read or hear that and think, he's talking about the Easter Rising, isn't he? Well, I go on. They were the men of the 8th and 9th Royal Dublin Fusiliers of the 16th Irish Division. The overwhelming odds were in the form of a German gas attack and they were fighting at Hullock in Belgium. Yet for most of Ireland, the true heroes of Easter Week 1916 would be those men and women who had fought closer to home in an attempted revolution against British rule. So... One of the really important things I'm trying to do here is challenge the idea that what happens in Easter week or the week after Easter, 1916, is only the Easter Rising, you know, because there's the 8th and 9th Royal Dublin Fusiliers with the rest of the 16th Division uh, on, on the front. So that, that's part of the challenging narrative. Let's think about what the dominant narratives are before I set out. Uh, what it is I, I i want to say in contrast thinking about ireland's world war one narratives well in northern ireland there's uvf enlists in the Thirty Sixth ulster division um, the irish volu- irish national volunteers go into the 16th irish division the ulster division suffers, he- suffers heavy losses on 1st of July 16 and since the 1990s we've heard a lot about the Battle of Messine, and it's been the place of cross-community reconciliation. Um, I've got things to say about that narrative but that's a different talk which some of you have heard before. Now if you try to construct a narrative for Dublin's First World War I think that's more complicated um, because actually there's a lot lacking. First of all among people who know anything about Dublin's First World War they might talk about the Dublin Pals um, sometimes described as the 7th Royal Dublin Fusiliers in fact of course it's really de-company of the 7th Dublins and they're at Gallipoli that's what's said, the fact that they're at Salonica and then they're in the Middle East afterwards and then they come back to the West that's not talked about, But so the Dublin Pals at Gallipoli is important, then you just have the Easter Rising, I mean that is the dominant Aspect of any Dublin narrative of the First World War. I think you then sort of get into the post-war exclusion and forgetting... ...and there's a big debate among academics about whether um, veterans received hostility... ...because of their involvement in in the um, First World War. There's some knowledge of ex-British soldiers being in the National Army in quite large numbers and some knowledge of individuals involved in the IRA um, and then uh, what you can call uh, the sort of counterpart to the Machine narrative the Irish Voices narrative that appears in the 1990s from the 1990s Miles Dungan's work um, and uh, Terry Denman's work obviously uh, but also the, specifically in Dublin the Royal Dublin Fusiliers Association and everything that that um, that Tom Burke did. So those are the sort of dominant narratives I think. My narrative that I want to offer is uh, a little different and it's got um, well half a dozen points roughly although uh, for the book I'm I'm trying to boil this down to three and I'm combining a few of these but I'll I'll talk about them separately tonight. First of all is that I think uh, you've got to set Dublin's Um, First World War within a much wider context of traditions of military service, that's the the second bullet, and also of imperial conflicts, that's the first point. So you can see, as I'll go on to explain, um, that some of the roots of the conflict or some of the signs of the conflict that happens in Dublin in 1916 can be seen in the wider British Empire much earlier in the south african war or as we sort of used to call it the boer war Um, i'm very keen to go beyond the pals that's not just that's not to diminish what they did and what happened to them but it's to recognize that there is a much wider dublin service a volunteer just a volunteering actually in for example in the sixth Royal Dublin Fusiliers, but also, of course, in the regular battalions of the British Army, the 1st and 2nd Dublins. I'm interested in resurrecting Dublin loyalism, the history of Dublin loyalism, uh, which sees Dubliners serving, in particular, in what is called the Dublin Company of the 9th Inniskilling Fusiliers. talk about that more later. Uh, the, I want to put... I want to resurrect the lost history of Irish Parliamentary Party nationalism and how that is expressed in the 16th Irish Division. Uh, I'm trying to put Easter 1916 into a wider context. What was going on at the fronts in which the British Army was engaged and in which Dubliners were serving during the Easter Rising, while that was going on? And then I've got... Crossovers between the British military and the IRA, families and individuals and crossovers within events. So I'll, I'll go through each of those now um, in turn. First of all, imperial conflict. Um, Tom Byrne, uh, his wife Lucy he meets uh, when he's involved in Irish nationalism, she becomes Lucy Byrne. Uh, They're both in the GPO during the Easter Rising. But when I looked into the case of Tom Byrne, he first stood out uh, as a member of the Irish Transvaal Brigade during the South African War. Um, He's serving alongside Sean McBride, later uh, well-known, of course, for his his role in the Easter Rising. And um, it struck me that, you know, What made Byrne act as he did uh, in Easter 1916 also made him act as he did uh, in 1899-1900. He's he's an anti-imperialist, he's opposed to the British Empire. His politics are not solely about Irish nationalism, or should we say Irish republicanism. They're actually anti-imperialist. Now. The Dublin Fusiliers are in that war as well, and I found that a man called Michael Tracy served, served in South Africa in the first Dublin Fusiliers, uh, is a martyr of Easter week, if you like, because he's killed at Hullock with the Eighth Dublins. And so these two men who come up against each other in some way uh, in the South African War will take very different sides in 1916. You can see the roots of their story in that imperial conflict. So this is putting that, I, I think what's often seen as an insular Irish nationalist struggle against the British into a wider imperial context where men from Dublin will fight on different sides of that uh, that imperial conflict. Now, that happens because Dublin has... Uh, long military traditions. Uh, One of them is seen in the case of Piers Murphy. Now when people are asked to think about who the first British fatalities are in the First World War, they're going to think about the uh, British Expeditionary Force in late August 1914. But the first British fatalities are on the second day of the United Kingdom's war. They're on the 5th of August 1914 um, uh, and uh, sorry, the 6th, the 6th of August 1914, um, on the HMS Amphion. And the Amphion had been involved in uh, conflict uh, off Harwich on the 5th of August 14. Uh, three British ships had, had ran into the German mine layer, the Conning and Louise, and, and Amphion uh, is is one of those. Uh, that, that ship was sunk. Um, the Next day, uh, as the Amphion returned to Harwich, it struck a mine which exploded. 148 uh, crew uh, of the ship were killed, plus around 20 German prisoners who'd, who'd been on the ship, uh, and a couple more died, a couple more of the crew died in hospital having been rescued. About half the crew is actually saved, but Dublin has someone killed. Uh, on on that ship twenty um, five year old signalman Joseph Pierce Murphy, known as Pierce and his family and his death was marked by this photo uh, in uh, in a newspaper and then a personal notice uh, in the Evening Herald on the thirteenth of august Murphy Pierce beloved son of John Murphy jr Cambridge Road ringsend, who was killed on h m s amphion r i p Sacred heart of Jesus, have mercy on his soul. Now, the interesting thing about this is not... It's just in the newspapers and mentioned. There's no coverage of him as Dublin's first death during the war. And the news comes through very quickly. It's not like somebody's gone missing. Ships go down and people are either saved or you know they're dead very quickly. Um, and, And so Dublin is in at the first moment of the UK's war and the UK's losses... ...because of its traditions of military service in the, na- or in the Navy. Now, there's another military tradition that gets going um, during the war... ...and that's of service uh, in, the, in the Air Forces. The three Cruis Callaghan brothers of Blackrock were killed serving in the war... ...each roughly a year apart. Eugene was the first... He's a 2nd Lieutenant in 19 Squadron, aged just 18 when he's killed on the 27th of August 1916. Initially he's declared missing, it's not until 8 months later in April 1917 that he's formally presumed to be dead. Meanwhile his brother Stanislaus, a captain in 44th wing, aged only 21, was killed in a crash in Canada. Uh, on the 28th of June, 1917. Um, Third brother, just over another year on, Joseph, 25-year-old major in 87th Squadron, killed in July 18. He'd enlisted in the Royal Munster Fusiliers in December 1914 uh, and transferred in August 16 to the Royal Flying Corps on gaining a commission. He'd had some ill health... um, including something that his record says was enfeebled heart action accentuated by overuse of tobacco. Um, And these three brothers were all killed. And uh, the the appeal to young men in Dublin to join the Air Force is something that particularly develops as the war goes on. Irishmen join, um, join the Royal Air Force, join the Royal Flying Corps and then the Royal Air Force. Um, three brothers killed, um, parents are still alive, along with a sister, and uh, two brothers too young to serve in the war. So uh, that's, that's half the siblings killed, um, all in the Royal Air Force. And I think that, that, that air tradition has, has been forgotten in Dublin's history of the war. But in particular, um, the tradition of the regular army in Dublin... Has, has been forgotten with all the focus on the on the Dublin Pals. Now I think the Battle of Lakato uh, late August to the first day of September 1914 is, is an interesting one from this point of view. It's the first uh, major engagement of the Second Royal Dublin Fusiliers, the first Dublin Battalion on the Western Front Um, They were on the Western Front through the entire war. They carried the standard for Dublin through the entire war on the Western Front. Other units containing Dubliners would come and go, but none did so for so long, or with such large numbers as the Second Dublins. Now, one of the things that has been overlooked about the Cato is, as I've mentioned earlier, later in the war, the Battle of Messines would be talked about as being an example of side-by-side service of men from different parts of Ireland and from different um, backgrounds. But in fact, Lakato is a very early example of that because the 2nd Dublins uh, served with the 1st Royal Irish Fusiliers. So, um, different parts of Ireland, Uh, they're both in 10th Brigade of 4th Division and in fact the 2nd in Skillins. Uh, were in another brigade in the same same division. So you have got this example of side-by-side service at Lakato. Never talked about at the time, never talked about since, but it's actually there as something that has been completely overlooked. Um, the engagement of the uh, Second Dublins at, at Lakato is, is very complicated. Um, they uh, suffer from the fact that the BEF is in a state of some chaos uh, in in late 1914. And one of the really controversial things that happens to the Second Dublins is an attempted surrender which sees the uh, court-martial of the officers concerned. And it's actually... Uh, the subject of a book by the former uh, Labour Cabinet Minister John Hutton. It's a really good book actually. I had no idea until quite recently that he had these interests and because of that book I won't go into um, the details now Um, but suffice to say that the story of the regulars on the Western Front uh, during the war is just not part of this Dublin pals Narrative, And, you know, just as I would have found in West Belfast, there are huge numbers of Dubliners joining the British Army pre-war and as reservists because it's, it's an attractive form of employment. It's relatively well paid. It's probably going to be quite exciting because they don't bank on facing the German army when they join us. They bank on small colonial wars that they think will probably not be as difficult as the South African War. You know, they, they think that's probably as bad as it gets for them. <clears throat> now, uh, so that's imperial conflict and military traditions. I'd like to think a bit about going beyond the um, the Dublin Pals. Now, there's a really really rich source. Um, which some of you may have seen because it's recently gone online which is Noel Drury's uh, diary it's, it's available through the National Army Museum and uh, Drury's from uh, Sagat uh, County Dublin he's a former uh, student of Trinity College one of the things that's interesting about the Sixth Dublins is that they're Social background is quite different to the 7th Dublin Fusiliers. They are um, uh, more likely to be unskilled, they're more likely to be working class or the lower middle class than the 7th than the Dublins. And it's interesting that the newspaper attention to the 7th Dublins is a matter of complaint even uh, by uh, some men in the 7th Dublin. The 6th Dublins uh, certainly grumble about it, um, but there are letters um, back um, uh, to people which which actually appear in newspapers. For example, um, Fred McCabe, who's a private in C Company rather than D Company, um, uh, wrote home to his father saying um, it was important that his company were not forgotten and that it be believed that D Company were the only ones to shine. Um, Sergeant Alec Hogg, uh, again in the 7th Dublins, uh, wrote a letter which actually was published in the Dublin Evening Mail, um, saying, ''To read your papers, one would think D Company were the only company in our lot. True, they did their bit well, but no better than any other company, and the 6th Dublins behaved gallantly also, though they got no special note.'' But they're not talked about in the paper, in the, in the papers, and I think some of that is to do with the social background of, of the Seventh Dublins over, over the Sixth Dublins. Um Drury's diary is, is wonderful because it's 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 enabled me to give a really vivid insight into to what their life was like um, at Gallipoli at Salonica and, and later and, and, and that's reflected in the narrative. But um I think it's imp- important to think about the impact they have on the way dublin remembers the war afterwards even if some of this is not overtly spoken during the war of independence uh, there's a part of dublin that becomes known as the dardanelles because the ira keep attacking british forces there Um, now if there had been such a place in belfast they wouldn't have called it the dardanelles they would have called it the Somme, and it's interesting that the by word for a really dangerous place where you're likely to be shot at a lot in Dublin is the Dardanelles. And that comes because Dublin's engagement with the Dardanelles is about much more than just the 7th Dublins. It's also about the 6th Dublins. Um, and by the way, it's also about the 1st uh, the <coughs> Dublins who are there... Uh, in um, uh, April 1915 and onwards with 29th Division. So that's the, it's not only about the, uh, about the 10th Irish Division. Now, a more unusual connection to a specific battalion came with the 9th Royal Inisgillin Fusiliers, part of the Ulster Division and formed from the Tyrone UVF. So why are Dubliners there? Well, men from Dublin joined in a group... From an organisation called the Loyal Dublin Volunteers, which was a sort of counterpart to the UVF, uh, but in Dublin, the LDV numbered around 2,000 at the outbreak of the war, uh, and around 600 of those men had enlisted within a year, and about 200 of those rapidly joined the 9th in the skinnings. That's how you get something which is talked about a couple of times in the papers as the Dublin Company of the Ninth in his Skillings. Um, you can certainly see the link in, in some of the officers. Um, William Crozier, who was a St. Stephen's Green barrister, um, joined up in October 1914. And when he was applying, uh, he stated for a commission, he, he stated that he'd been drilling with the LDV. And if appointed, he'd be serving and commanding with some of the men he'd trained uh, during the last year. And he was given a commission. And, and was kept in the Ninth in the Skillings with the, um, with the Dublin Company. There's other examples of that. So the lost history, uh, not just of um, Dublin unionism, I mean, we all know about the sort of upper middle class Dubliners who were unionists, but you know, the, 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 the more radical elements, they wouldn't have used the term loyalism at the time, but we can think of it as that. Dublin loyalism is something that's just been completely, completely lost from... Uh, this story. At the same time, we have forgotten to some extent uh, the degree to which Dublin was dominated politically prior to 1916 by mainstream Irish Parliamentary Party nationalism. They were fervent supporters of John Redmond. Um, people like Thomas Kettle, you know, absolutely crucial in the formation of the Irish Volunteers, which isn't solely the creation of O'Neil or Irish Republican Brotherhood people, as as it's sometimes now um, implied. There's another interesting figure, though, in Kettle's unit, the um, the 9th uh, Dublins, um, and that is 2nd Lieutenant James Emmett Dalton. Born in the USA but moved to Dublin aged two in 1900, um, became a naturalised British citizen in 1913. He'd enlisted in November 1915, having declared himself to be 19 uh, rather, than, uh, rather than 17, after seeking advice from a friend of his father's. His, friend, his father's friend was Joe Devlin, the Nationalist MP for West Belfast and very much a supporter of recruitment for the Irish Brigade. Um, Emmett Dalton initially hoped to join the 7th Dublins. But when he was commissioned, he was sent to the 3rd Dublins for training. The 7th Dublins were full and he was sent to a reserve battalion. His commission came as something of a surprise to his father, who, as Dalton arrived home in a British uniform, and this is quoting Dalton, told me to get out that no bloody redcoat would enter his house. Dalton then recalled, My mother was in hysterics, and after a time we subdued the old man and I was received. Um, I suspect relations with his father were helped by the fact that he was training in Cork rather than deployed to the streets of Dublin during the Easter Rising. And he was then attached to the 9th um, Dublins in September 1916, uh, actually, between Gaimon and Ginchi, he's 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 there for Ginchi, but not for Gimon, And then he wins the Military Cross um, for his actions at Ginchi. He was wounded a few weeks later, spent a week away from his unit before returning, only to fall ill in October. Um, and then eventually ends up in Salonica with the Sixth Leinsters, uh, and I'll come back to him a bit later because he's a he's an interesting figure uh, right. so I've um, got two slides on, um, on Easter 1916 and there's a lot of numbers on them I'll, I'll just explain what I'm trying to do with these briefly uh, I, I thought how, how, you know, how can you tell the story of Easter 1916 in a new way that nobody's done before it, it's actually hard Well, I was pleasantly surprised at how much uh, really good um, material there is that doesn't often get much attention in the literature from, for example, the witness statements. So um, there's a lot of uh, material on Michael O'Hanrahan, who's a one of the rising leaders who's executed, who's an ex-British soldier, and I, I've, I've used quite a lot of that because he's an example of someone who flowed between the British Army and, and the Republican movement uh, with some ease. But I thought what I would do is just simply start each day by explaining what was going on in different fronts of the war. So you'll find, um, you know, the, the day the rising breaks out, Dublin's war dead... 3 in France and Flanders and then and then home of wounds uh, 2 um rising dead uh is um uh, 37 on the Tuesday war dead 2 in Mesopotamia well who's thinking that stuff is going on in Mesopotamia uh while uh while the Easter rising is happening um uh, and then the Wednesday rising dead 73 Um, Dublin's war dead, seven France and Flanders, five Mesopotamia, again two. But things get more interesting when we get on to uh, the latter part of the week, when there are 55 dead on Thursday, uh, mostly in France and Flanders, and then a very high number of dead in France and Flanders, 70 on the Saturday. And you've got this sort of symmetry between what's going on in the Western Front with uh, Around Hullock primarily uh, with a with a with a rise in tensions during the Easter rising, and eventually the the, the fall of the Easter rising on the Saturday and the Sunday, um, what to make of all of this? Well, one figure is that Dublin loses um, uh, around three times as many people on uh, different fronts of the war, mainly the Western Front during this week nearly three times as many as are rebels killed in dublin during the rising so that is you know if we're thinking about just devastation to particular groups then then the uh, british army is suffering uh, rather more significantly in terms of dubliners killed uh, than and rebels as a whole and of course they're not all dubliners but uh, one of the things I'm hoping to do in just the next couple of weeks is then track where, exactly where these men were from and relate that to the areas that were destroyed in Dublin during the Rising. Because my senses uh, from the data that I've gone through already is that you know one of the things that explains the very negative reaction to the rebels as they're led away by the the reaction coming from the so-called separation women, the women whose husbands are away at the front and they're receiving the separation allowance, is is because the areas that the the Rising is fought in is working-class areas in which you've got a large number of soldiers. So I just need to pick out some streets and think, well, you know, yeah, that street was destroyed, and by the way, they'd already had half a dozen men killed during the war, so how did they feel about this... Declaration of support for our gallant allies in Europe. You know, in the in the proclamation of the republic. It's. I. Th- I, th- I. think that some of that can be explained by reference to that um, geography. Uh, crossovers. Drawing to a close on on these points. Now, during. The War of Independence. The the value of British veterans of the, the IRA to the IRA came to the fore. I found uh, in Dublin at least sixteen former members of the British military with Great War experience who joined or worked very closely with the IRA uh, in Dublin. Stephen O'Connor has done some work on this, on his in, in his book on um, British ex British soldiers going into the uh, into the National Army. Uh, but I've done a little bit more. Now, some of these people were involved in intelligence work. One of them is a man called William Beaumont. William's uh, brother, Sean, uh, was already in the IRA, while also being a communist, which was a little bit unusual for IRA members at the time. And William, um, home from the British Army, demobbed, was on a tram in Dublin when he was handled roughly by some... British soldiers who were searching the tram he they found on him a notebook which contained details of how to use a machine gun and they put two and two together and thought he was a member of the LRA um, he eventually persuaded them truthfully that he'd made the notes in, in France and it just happened to be in his notebook and he was eventually set free th- But his brother recalled, this is in one of the witness statements, he came home furious with indignation about the way that he and the other passengers, particularly the women, had been treated. And the first thing he said to me when he came in uh, was that if I got him a gun, he would shoot some of the auxiliaries. Well, Sean calmed him down and said, actually, you know what, it would be far more useful if you, and he said, cultivate their acquaintance and pass on any information he might get to me. So he actually met up with these men who he'd eventually persuaded he was simply an ex-British soldier and started drinking with them regularly. Um, And Sean recalled, "'From then until the truce, my brothers spent almost every night in their company drinking. Sometimes they started in pubs or hotels, and sometimes they finished up in the castle.' to which he accompanied them after curfew. They used to leave him home in an armoured car about two or three o'clock in the morning. When he came in, I used to write down as much as he could remember of their conversation when it had uh, any bearing on the war. Now, we know a reasonable amount about Michael Collins' intelligence operation in Dublin and the importance of civilian clerks. um, One called Lily Mernin, in particular, in passing on information about who the British intelligence forces in Dublin were. But Sean's, Sean Beaumont's view of his brother was he was able to give me the names and addresses of all the intelligence corps of the auxiliaries. That is, all the men that were shot on Bloody Sunday and a couple who escaped. So this, the role of this ex-British soldier in setting up Bloody Sunday was probably quite important. Now, two others stand out. Um, in the IRA's uh, audacious mission to Mountjoy Prison in May 1921 to rescue Longford IRA Sean McCohen. And these are Emmett Dalton uh, and Peter Gough. Dalton had been at Salonika after the Somme with the Sixth Leinsters and then went to Egypt and Palestine and then to the Western Front early in 1918 and... He's actually in the second Leinsters as part of the liberation of Ledergem in October 1918, which I think is going to be commemorated quite significantly next year. Uh, Emmett was drawn into training the IRA specifically because of his great war experience uh, through his brother Charles, uh, who was already involved. And it seems likely that he got involved in the IRA by the middle of 1919, by which point he was certainly giving lectures to IRA uh, officers. Uh, Dalton was selected for the Mountjoy mission because Michael Collins had come up with a plan that involved capturing a British armored car, driving it into the prison, uh, and then having someone who could pose as a British officer. And uh, Dalton was described by senior Dublin IRA figure Oscar Traynor as the typical British officer: very neat, debonair, small, fair toothbrush moustache and spoke with a kind of affected accent which was entirely suitable for the character which he had to impersonate. Dalton provided two of his own British Army uniforms. Uh, another was worn, worn by R.A. volunteer Joe Leonard who'd, ser- who'd been in Mountjoy for six months so knew his way around. Um, with them was Peter Gough. Uh, He was an ex-Dublin fusilier. He'd served in Gallipoli, Salonica and Egypt. He'd been wounded on multiple occasions and was actually in receipt of a British pension, 20% pension, when he returned to Dublin after the war. But when Gough had got back to Dublin, um, he was told by his brother, who was a member of the Irish Citizens' Army, ''You've been fighting for a foreign country long enough. It's up to you now to fight for your own country.'' and Gough reacted by joining the IRA, serving in a unit in the Doyle area, and he'd been a machine gunner during the war, so that expertise was discovered by the IRA and put to use. Now, the raid on Mountjoy failed when the authorities became suspicious of Dalton's orders. Dalton didn't have signed orders from anyone uh, that was known and, and attempted to talk his way out of it, uh, but didn't, and the prison... Uh, officer that he saw said, I'm off to talk to the governor about this, at which point Dalton and Goff decided that they'd better extricate themselves. Um, Interestingly, both Dalton and Goff would uh, be with Michael Collins uh, when he was killed. Uh, And this uh, this is Dalton in the British Army, and this is Dalton in London with Collins during the um, treaty negotiations. Dalton becomes an important figure in the um, National Army, um, and he's particularly crucial when Free State forces launch an attack on the Four Courts, um, and crucial to the use of the attack was artillery which was suggested by Emmett Dalton, who had obtained two 18-pounder field guns from British forces that were still in Dublin. So Dalton is absolutely crucial in a particular... um, Well, the the outbreak of the Civil War, and I think um, because of his British Army background, he is able to speak to and negotiate with the British in a way that others weren't. Now, this is where we get into another case... um, Michael McCabe uh, I've mentioned Dalton at the four courts inside the four courts uh, among the, uh, the anti-treaty IRA were some men with British military experience, one of those was Michael McCabe now he'd been at Rose Distillery uh, having just joined the volunteers, having been a member of the Fianna he'd, he'd joined the volunteers just before the outbreak of the um, of the Rising but he, he was only 15 when he was captured, and he was freed by the British due to his age. Uh, he spent um, uh, about a week uh, in, in, in prison uh, and, and was let out with a clip round the ear, essentially. Uh, what did he do then, having been involved in the Easter Rising? Well, he joined the British Army in 1917, and he remained with it until April 1922. He was wounded in late 19, in the latter stages of the war in 1918, October, I think. Um, in April 1922, he was with his regiment, King's Own Royal Lancaster Regiment, in Dublin, and bumps into Liam Mellows. Mellows, he had known uh, through his Fianna connections, and he deserts. Deserts the British Army and goes into the Four Courts. As a member of the Anti-Treaty IRA, and he became an instructor in arms drill in the Four Courts Garrison. It's his story. This is, by the way, is his death certificate um, from uh, 1975. Um, it's his story that I find as one of the most intriguing because he's one of the Dubliners to take advantage of the change in IRA pensions in 1934 brought in by the Fianna Foyle government, which meant that members of the anti-treaty IRA could now claim a pension. They hadn't been able to do that in the 20s, but they could in 1934. McCabe, Fianna, volunteers, British Army, anti-treaty IRA, McCabe gets round to applying for his pension in 1938 when his address is the Gold Coast Regiment of Britain's Royal West African Frontier Force and back into the British Army. And I love this bit of understatement. He's writing to a friend who's assisting with the paperwork, and you had to get your application witnessed. And he said, I've not had my statement witnessed out here. Afraid it just wouldn't suit. Um, When the Second World War broke out, he was still serving as part of the Gold Coast Regiment. and, And there's a 1941 note... Um, from him which just says he's somewhere in abyssinia and apologises for not having responded to some correspondence he survived the war leaving the army in 1946 taking up residence back in drumcondra Um, don't know what he did between then but he dies in 1975 and on his death certificate he's described as retired british soldier How can we we reconcile McCabe's story with any sense of logic or consistency? Well, he is only one man. I mean, we have to count that this may just be a very unusual story. But here is someone who was so much against Ireland being part of the UK that in 1916 he took part in an armed rebellion against it. Just a year later, he joined the British Army, surely knowing full well the risks in such a venture, um... And indeed, he was wounded in 1918. He appears to have had no desire to get back to Ireland to continue the struggle, to pursue the ideals of Easter 1916. At least he didn't do so. He stayed in the British Army. And it's only when in Dublin in 22 that he comes across his friend, uh, Liam Mellows, who persuades him to desert and take part in the Four Courts occupation. Now, one might have expected that a serving British soldier like McCabe was exactly the sort of man who might seek an accommodation with the British and be pro-treaty. But instead he took the anti-treaty path and became a prisoner of the Irish Free State, and later rejoining the British Army, once again putting his life on the line in wartime for a country to whose rule in his own country he'd been bitterly opposed. Now there aren't, there can't be any firm explanations from this. We're really just... A few footprints have been left on, on history by Michael McCabe. He didn't leave any detailed explanation of what he'd done in his IRA pensions file. And we can speculate, I think, on the appeal of the excitement of 1916 to a 15-year-old who recently joined the volunteers from the Fianna. And we can speculate on how far simple personal friendship Caused him to follow Mellows in 1922, and then, if him joining the British Army twice, for perhaps was for economic reasons, then he'd hardly be the first Irishman to succumb to uh, the lure or the necessity of the King's Shilling. And we might also wonder if he was simply someone who enjoyed military life, uh, whatever the army and whatever the cause. Perhaps at different times, the opportunities for him were just very, very limited. Um, none of this can be known. But what we can be sure of is this. Um, during 1912-23, to 23, British and Irish soldiers from Dublin were capable of being both the worst of enemies and the best of comrades. Uh, and more than anything else, I think Michael McCabe's life, Uh, or at least these military snippets of it, are a symbol of that paradox of uh, British-Irish relations. Thank you.
0: You have been listening to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe. Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition.